0: Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Pugh, and I am a program director with Peace Catalyst International here in the Washington, D.C. area, and I'm joined by my co-host, Keith Giles.
1: Yes, uh, and I am Keith Giles, and my wife, Wendy, and I are working with Peace Catalyst here in El Paso, Texas, to uh, help bring Muslims and Christians together. We are starting a new series, but we'll get talk about that in just a second. But we want to, um, we, well, we started something new, I guess, in the last couple of episodes where we've been doing something called the Peace Quote of the Week. And uh, this is just something where we kind of go and find some uh, really inspiring quotes from some different people and uh, something that can also kind of help us as we're thinking through how we can be better peacemakers. So what is our Peace Quote of the Week for, for this episode, Becca?
0: Yeah, so I found this really cool quote um, from Nelson Mandela. It says, "One of the most difficult things is not to change the society, but to change yourself." I think that's so powerful, and it's it's really true because even in, um, you know, even in peacemaking, like of course we're trying to impact um, society as. As a whole, because we want everybody to become a part of peacemaking and um, building peace in their communities, but first we have to look inwards before we can can focus outwards. I think.
1: Yeah, and that is such a great quote. Yeah, I can remember several years ago when I was really just kind of getting started in this whole following Jesus into into loving our enemies and nonviolence and and that kind of thing, and um, yeah, and I kind of had to. Uh, you know, it's true. I kind of had those moments where I had to recognize, because you can get so passionate about wanting to fix the world and fix everybody else and and show everybody else how they've got it wrong and they're they're not doing it right. But I think it really does have to begin, this whole peacemaking process has to begin within us. We have to recognize the ways, the things within us that kind of still lean towards violence or or we still in some ways believe and sort of um, retributive justice and, and these kinds of things where, so yeah, we'd kind of let the Holy spirit do some work on our own heart and uh, reveal to us the things that we still need to grow in and the things that we still need to learn in. like find finding areas in our own heart where Christ has not yet uh, reformed us and transformed us within um, when it comes to that. And here's, this is a really weird example, but, um, but it's, but this is true. This is a very real thing. So when I was going through that season, where i was feeling like the holy spirit was saying look hold on before you go and change the world uh i was doing this pacifist fight club thing with some friends of mine and we were having a lot of fun but then it got really serious like the holy spirit was saying keith look at your own heart so here's what i what was happening um and i'm not trying to i don't say this to condemn anybody else i'm just saying this is what i went through okay so please hear me I'm not, this is not a condemnation. If uh, for anybody who finds himself in this place. But I was recognizing that for me, um, I was still being entertained, let's put it that way, by violence, right? So um, sometimes I would play these video games uh, on the Xbox that were basically the whole point of the game was to get a bunch of weapons and, and kill as many people as possible, right? And um, so here I am trying to fight for peace and try, trying to advocate for nonviolence and trying to convince people that following Jesus in the way of nonviolence was, was the way to go. And yet I would go in my downtime and, um, be entertained by, or, you know, uh, allow myself to sort of fall into this, like, Hey, this is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm and again. I know it's not real. It's video games, but yet I, for me, again, I'm not saying this about anybody else, but for me, it was sort of like, I felt convicted by that. Like, is peace really something in my heart that I really believe in? And if so, should is there a sort of a compromise I'm doing here where I'm allowing myself to enjoy, because that's what I'm doing. I'm enjoying committing, even if it's virtual violence
0: and destruction
1: mm-hmm. and death, uh, I'm still participating, at least in some way, with this idea that violence is okay in certain contexts. And so for me, I, yeah, I just got to the place where I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I I don't think if I'm going to be consistent in these things, I want to be, I want it to be something that goes through my whole heart, my whole life um, that I don't sort of hold this little compartmentalized part of myself over here that allows me to sort of advocate against violence and all these other ways, but in a personal way, kind of go, yeah, but you know, this part is still okay. And so uh, that, that for me is how that kind of a quote, something, that kind of an idea of like, I still need to work on the change in my own heart. Right. How convinced am I basically that peace really is the, the best
0: way. Wow. That's convicting. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. And our, <laughs> our, our culture does totally glorify violence in so many yes. different ways. And it's easy to kind of forget that and just be consuming it without even realizing. And um, I hope we can talk more someday about the pacifist fight club because I'm yeah. <laughs> super intrigued by that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and it's also funny, and I, I don't want to, to spend too much time on this quote, but um, the, the other thing that I, I thought was interesting, we, I used to have some neighbors um, when I lived in California, and uh, he was he's British and he's Catholic. She's Indian and she was Hindu, and uh, the married couple that lived next door to us. And so we would have them over for dinner and talk with them and stuff. And they were the ones, because they're not Americans, right? They're, he's British, she's Indian. And they're the ones who brought it up. They, they started saying to us that they were noticing, when they, especially when they first came to America, how violent um, our language, the the way people talk in America, right? So, for example, when you talk about you go into a building and you go to the elevator, what do you do? You punch the button for the elevator. You don't press it. You wow. punch it. Oh,
0: and my gosh. You
1: know, like, Let's say you go for a job interview. You don't say... I think I did really well. You say I killed it. You killed it. Yeah. And I was like, and then they so they they say that
0: all the time. Yes.
1: They had all (laughs) kinds of examples. And I was like, oh my gosh, see, it's so so unconscious that everything we say is said in a way that's violent, right? There's Mm. there's violence inherent in our language of just everyday ordinary conversations and speech. Mm. And it's it's that's another way. It's sort of like the subconscious sort of idea of like violence just permeates our culture it permeates our way of thinking um and so, that was just yeah. that, that was a big eye-opening thing for me like oh i wonder what other ways i'm doing this and i don't realize now i'm more conscious of it i i start noticing it more often in my own speech or even in other people when they talk like right why do we have to say it in a way that's implying you know death and violence and bloodshed and and dominating the other person like but we kind
0: of do right so. oh i'm so convicted by that I'm pretty sure I said that to a friend last week about a job interview like you I'm sure you crushed it you killed it like I killed it yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> that right. is something I've never stopped to think about so that's yeah wow that is really convicting yeah that's pretty cool
1: and then and then just real quick too um mm-hmm. that Nelson, Nelson Mandela quote reminds me of a, one of my favorite quotes from Socrates uh he says something I think it's similar where he says that the secret of change is to focus all all of your energy not on fighting the old but on building the new, and um, and especially That's in our friends. series today, um, I think this is kind of what uh, we're wanting to do here in Peace Catalyst. It's definitely what our our uh, guest today in this podcast episode is all about. And so, before we get over to that, let me just announce the fact that yes, we have a brand new series. Um, We are starting a brand new series here on the podcast. We're going to be interviewing Christian peacemakers, Um, and this will be our opportunity to talk to um, other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are actively pursuing shalom in their communities and in their context. So um, the interesting thing is a lot of the people we're going to interview are not necessarily doing direct peace work between Christians and Muslims. Uh, A lot of them are doing peace work uh, with, um, you know, racial reconciliation or violence in in communities um, and just bringing groups together in general who are in conflict in many different ways. But our goal is that by talking to them and looking at the ways they approach peacemaking in their communities and how they walk this out um, as they're trying to follow Jesus, it helps us to understand what ways can we also be better about changing the world around us so that we can become better peacemakers?
0: Absolutely. And I, I think it's incredible that, you know, all the guests that we have are getting to talk to and, um, you know, we just feel so honored to, ha- to have this conversation today with Cleo Scott Brown, um, who's an award-winning author, speaker, and she's also a race relations strategist. Um, who runs an organization in Charleston, South Carolina called History Matters Institute. Um, she's written a couple of books, Raceology 101 and Witness to the Truth. And her books and her workshops and her trainings are designed for understanding, introspection, and ultimately change.
1: thank you so much for joining us on the Peace Catalyst podcast. And Thank you for having me. You and I met through this um, panel that was put together called Writers Against Racism, and I was just so blessed and impressed, to be honest, um, hearing you share. But, you know, the, the challenge with a panel like that, it was a very large panel, is that each person can really only speak a little bit, and I thought I would be so so excited to sit with you and really give you your own space to talk about the work that you've been doing. And I think specifically what we're most interested in um, is the work that you've been doing in the areas of working towards uh, racial reconciliation. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, uh, maybe maybe before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, maybe explain a little bit uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this kind of work and, and why it's so important to you. Okay, thank you. Well, I never had
2: intended to be involved in this work. It was something that happened quite by accident. I grew up in the home of a civil rights leader and being in the car with my father when he was shot for trying to get the right to vote at the age of seven, And then from seven till about 11, we were living pretty much under constant siege and terrorism, uh, racial terrorism. When we finally moved through that period, I would have said the last thing that I wanted to be involved with was talking about dealing with or in any way involvement with issues of race,
1: hmm. but
2: um, further into my life, in, in, and in and I was a corporate manager, a risk manager. Uh, I ended up writing my father's story, and that's what pulled me back into this work. So it was it was totally by accident, hmm. and so I, I wrote his story, and it's a witness to the truth. And that put me in front of audiences talking about race and racial conflict. And after about 10 years of speaking and taking questions and having a lot of pretty much all white audiences and and getting to talk intimately about issues of race, it just put me in a place where where I guess I was in a position to, to really do this type of work when it was presented to me. That, that led to the, the second book, which was Raceology 101, and basically what I did with that book was all these things I had heard over that 10-year period, not, the things that confused people, that got in the way of great discussions, uh, each essay covers a different aspect of of something that I saw as a roadblock to, to, uh, to basic discussion. That's why it's called fundamentals or understanding and change. So this, that's how I ended up in this work. And then it expanded into uh, some special projects we have going on in Charleston.
0: I think it's so amazing how, um, you've been able to allow your personal journey um, with experiencing racism to fuel you into bringing reconciliation and justice in this area. And I guess one question I have is um, maybe if you had to put an idea into words about like, what would be a foundation for the kind of peace building work that you do, um, such as like listening to understand, or um, you know, choosing to uh, to reach across the divide. Like, how would you put that into words?
2: Well, the name of my company is History Matters Institute because correcting untruths in history is foundational to this work. And so in the Charleston area, about four years ago, we started the YWCA started this project and they brought in a group called a uh, Race Equity Institute Racial Equity Institute. And basically what it did was change uh, the narrative. And we did that by teaching history. And so that was, um, what really started it so about 400 people have now gone through this training and in fact it would have been a whole lot more if it hadn't been for COVID uh we've got police departments going through now school teachers etc and and now that we've gotten so many people that can speak about issues of race from a common point. Now we're moving into a, a new section, a new category of work where we are starting to meet and form small groups and tackling certain problems that arose out of racism or issues of race. That's
1: that's so great. So yeah, it's saying, it seems like um, that is, maybe the first uh, and the most important thing is to get everybody on the same page when we're talking about uh, racism and civil rights and things like this in America, because, and I will just say this as a as a white person raised by white people, um, <laughs> educated in uh, largely white run, um, you know, organizations and schools and institutes, um, you know, you run into a lot of really just miseducation, people wanting to deny just the most basic things like, oh, you know, the Civil yes. War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. And you're like, well, yeah, but states' rights to do what? To own people as property. That's slavery. You know, it was about slavery. And, and or, all these just, or just
2: to read the documents of secession. That's yes. a primary document. It tells you we are seceding because of slavery.
1: Right. <laughs> yes. In their own words, they, they are telling you exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, but I mean, even up to you know, modern times as well, um, you have people that, you know, white people again, who deny that such a thing as white privilege exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, and I don't know if you would agree with me, but I feel like it's mostly that they don't even know what that word means when mm-hmm. you say white privilege. So, do you spend time talking about that at all, or do you really just sort of want to address sort of uh, more recent historical things to put us on the same page before we begin that conversation?
2: Well, we uh, here in Charleston, and of course Charleston being the historic city and that's teaching history to a whole lot of other people, uh, we start back at the at the beginning. So we start at the origins of the the company of the country and we kind of the uh, program that is used through the Y it it brings in how did this system of separation get created in the first place and then it goes into the different laws and how they it might have been a simple law like Social Security or the um, the you know aid for um, uh, soldiers, and it but it applied different in you know, a segregated environment, and so you you help people to understand that oh yeah everybody got these VA benefits but. If you could, GI Bill said you could go to college. But in the South, you could go to a black college. But if you lived in a city in the North or anywhere in the North, most likely there wasn't a college for you to go to. So, you know, it, 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 it shows economically uh, how things are different. Which appear to be the same on the surface. Um, so, yeah, like Social Security, all the farm workers being excluded, all the domestics being excluded. So, that means that my generation has to take care of our parents' generation when so many of them were in those fields because of the Social Security issue. So it's 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 a it's a lot of you know different things redlining lining, um, you couldn't get a loan if you li- if you wanted to buy a house in a certain area you couldn't get a home improvement loan if you wanted to make your house nicer if you lived in a certain area so yeah we're we're mostly just going through history and the differences that are ap- applied uh, depending on who you are.
1: Yeah, and all of that is so important, Cleo. So I'm curious, when you go through this uh, education process, um, what is the reaction? Do you have a lot of white Christians going, "I had no idea," or or what? What? How does it impact them when they when they learn about all these kinds of things that you've just talked about?
2: Well, we have all kinds of people taking the class. And we've really been actively working on trying to to get more faith leaders to even come and haven't been very successful in that area. You know, it's more like corporate and nonprofits and, and, and governmental workers, but it's very hard. And it's a problem that I had wrestled with for a very long time. And I really started seriously praying about it because I discovered that any issue that came on the table that had racism or some racial component, it was like white Christians in general. I'm not saying everybody, but for the most part, Seem to have like blind spots, and so I just I really started praying about that, and and I just felt that the Holy Spirit just spoke and said, you know this this is a problem that was caused by the church.
1: Mm-hmm. This is a
2: a demonic spirit that was planted by, nurtured by, fattened by, the church, and only the white church can kill it, and so it's 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 so hard because i've spent the last year and a half on researching race and religion and 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 how it's interwoven and you history clearly shows that they were the church was the lead on on teaching people that slavery and the cruelties of slavery and treating people as property was okay that was that was the church's doing
1: yeah yeah exactly and then this is um first of all hearing you say all this uh i i i know what you're saying is exactly the truth it breaks my heart to hear it um but i know you're right uh and, and this is one of the uh the probably the most painful and difficult things for white Christians to really come to terms with is, as you said, so many of these things were supported by, promoted by uh, the white Christian church. And as you said, really, since they're the ones who have kind of breathed life into this, this way of thinking, they're really the, the, a critical component to helping to tear it down.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's, but your
2: other part of your
1: question was,
2: how did people react who actually came to the class? Yes, the, the reaction has been great because the first class was brought as a one-time event, and people were immediately calling, like, how "Do I get in that class? I heard about that class. I want to hear about. I want to go to that." And so it is. It is a I've gone through a lot of diversity training, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, this was the most effective class that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And and people are, oh my, it, it's like, I mean I've seen black men break down and cry. I've mm-hmm. seen uh, white men, you know, like say, I I you know, I never understood this before. I've seen white women cry. I've seen, I mean, it's like they step you through this and then it's like this, these lights go on. And so, you know, you work in groups and you work separately, but in the end, you just have this better appreciation and understanding for how we got here because it's like all these iterations that America has gone through because you know the racial divide is up and down in America between blacks and whites so gain political power there's always a backlash hmm. then black people lose political power and then once we're just being killed all in the streets too much then usually it'll swing back the other way we'll start back the gaining power and then it'll come back again this is like the third third iteration of that and so right now we're at the real bad bad point where all this is being done through the primarily through the church people to basically disenfranchise african americans so oh. so we're really going into the really bad part of that cycle.
0: I'm so, um, just so, wow, impressed with just hearing you talk about, um, this work. And I think a lot of people really don't, um, either they don't know or they don't want to confront the history. Um, and I guess one question I have for you too, Cleo, is how do you deal with, um, would you say that your efforts are to kind of um, push back against predominantly in the South um, cultural efforts to remove like historical evidence of, of slavery um, and racism and also to kind of whitewash or even romanticize that era <laughs> of our history or how have you, do you address that in your classes at all? Or how do you deal with that?
2: Um the removing of monuments and things, that's like real low on my priority list. But, you know, for some people, that's important. I would leave it there and then tell all the horrible things that person did, but they wouldn't go <laughs> along with that idea either. <laughs> right. But we're what we've done is we've, we've identified and brought in a course that doesn't leave doesn't have people leaving the class feeling guilty or, or Mm -hmm. I mean, so many people, like I don't want to, I don't want to go uncomfortable. That's the word. It's not for, they have designed a class that actually doesn't make people uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. you never talk about yourself. You never talk about unless at the very end, you know, you want to say something, you never talk about what you personally feel or what you're personally thinking. It's, it's history. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And it's history that links how one thing, because history, everything in history leads to another thing that leads to another thing. And, and so we're all about correcting and helping people understand the links in history. And then the people leave the class wanting to do something. And so that's how we have the Charleston area justice ministry. And I don't remember how many different faith groups, like 26 or something, but these are actually churches coming together. They take one social justice problem a year, and they work on that the whole year. And then at the end of the year, all the congregations come together, thousands of people, to hear the presentation of the solution. And they bring in people from um, politicians who are responsible for it. If it was something in policing, the chiefs of police, and then it's kind of like, what say ye? You know, they're on the stage. They get they getting they've gotten the package ahead of time, and they come and tell all these this large group of people, "This is what we can do about it." We've already given you the the best solution that we've investigated and think is the best solution, and so this is actually faith groups, and it's made up of Muslims, Catholics. Um, a few non-denominational, some some United Methodists, some Black Baptists, no white Baptists, um, and so oh some some Synagogues, and they we've they are all part of this group, this Charleston area Justice
1: Ministry. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. That's beautiful. It is sad, though, to hear. See, I um, I grew up in Southern Baptist uh, churches, and I was licensed and ordained Southern Baptist. And although I'm sadly not shocked that you don't have any white Baptists in your area participating, I have to uh, I have to say I'm really disappointed that you can't find even one that's willing to do that. But um, you know, I guess this is part of the the slow you know, shift or the sh- slow movement towards progress and uh, towards justice. And hopefully, you know, uh, the more people are involved, that we we will start to see that, you know, moving that needle a little bit. But so I'm curious though now, and I don't know if this is too broad a question or if, but I'm just curious what, what you would say, you know, what can white Christians do who who are sympathetic, who do hear what you're talking about, who who listen to this and say, you know, this is a problem, and I do want to do something about it, and I do want to be a part of the solution. What do, do you have any ideas? What are the things that, what are the best things, let's say, why Christians could do if they wanted to be a part of the solution?
2: One is actually learn your history. <laughs> and two is uh, maybe get in small groups, identify other people. Who feel as you feel, and think as you think, and have small group group meetings. You can, you know, get together and and just, like around here, they've been reading books together and then discussing things together. We have a Living Your Truth series where there's a black person and a white person who are in similar backgrounds, like a black politician and a white politician, a white pastor, a black pastor. And they talk about their lives and 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 discover ways that they are similar and ways that they are very, very different. And people get to ask questions. And so what we're doing around here, and I know it's like a, a slow thing, but you're developing relationships. And when these cross-cultural, cross-racial groups meet and, and do things together, it changes how they see each other, and it changes how much time they will invest in, in helping to move the narrative forward. So right now we're doing a lot of work with changing the narrative because like Abraham Lincoln said, you know, public sentiment is everything, you know, you can't do anything with, unless you've got it and anything big. And so we're trying to change public sentiment and we're doing it in in groups. And so that's what, what I'm suggesting that you find like-minded people, but white people in Charleston are speaking to other white people about the issues. So as more and more white people go through the training and and are involved in these intimate discussions, then they're going out into their circles. And oftentimes they are much more able to get the point across or explain it in a way uh, that's meaningful. By they,
1: they are the ones that are presenting to their friends, who might think different. Yeah, well, because is is it um, as you were saying that I'm I'm wondering is it because that a, a white person will pay attention to something if a white person says it, versus if a black person says the exact same thing?
2: No, it's because okay. <laughs> the white person is a white person they respect. Right. As a white person that they already have a relationship with. Yeah. And so when this white person checks them on something racist that they've said or very biased that they've said, then it 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 has more of an impact. Yeah. And yeah. so so now that we've really, really moved far apart, I'm talking about the churches now because of the last election and this willingness to to go along with this scheme to not count the votes of people of color, it's really made the the, 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 the gap <laughs> wider and so so we've got to really do some serious work now
0: yes yeah. so, you know. This reminds me of that quote that says, I think, I can't remember who said this. It might've been Martin Luther King Jr., but um, those who love peace must learn to organize as well as those who love war. And oh. it, have you heard that before? No. It's just, just a good one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really reminds me of, of what you're talking about. Um, and I'm wondering... Cleo, as a Christian, how does your faith um, inform this work that you do?
2: If if I didn't have a strong faith in God, and I think I would be beyond discouraged. In these last five months, have been at such a just dis- the most discouraging time in 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 my older adult life, just the things that have been said and done. And, and so I have to, we, we, we pray a lot. We, we have our Wednesday night calls and, and we pray, we pray a lot because this country is, is becoming more and more racially divided. And the Hate groups are becoming stronger and stronger and more politically savvy and 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 in control. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is indeed a frightening time if I didn't have God to to, to turn to and to go as my go-to mm-hmm. and if my father, could look at somebody pulling a gun on him and he could tell them, shoot if you want to, because you can't kill me unless God gives permission. That's the kind of home that I was raised in. So I have to remember to keep going back to my roots <laughs> mm-hmm. and, 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 and keeping my faith strong and, and not letting what I see, what I hear change my, my mood or my drive to make a difference, a real difference in this world before I die. <laughs> Cause I think yeah. I was put on here on the earth for this reason.
1: Yeah. 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 That's, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, and sometimes yeah, our faith can be our can be what motivates us, but our, and it can also be what gives us, you know, energy and and strength, uh, just to go on on a daily basis to keep doing this kind of work because sometimes it can get discouraging. If you if you look at the bigger picture, you you do feel that it's either moving very very slowly or maybe even not at all. <laughs> so it uh, it takes faith sometimes to say no, I. I know that what I'm doing is what I should be doing. And I'm believing in faith that if I keep doing this work, and I'm not alone in doing this work, uh, that we're going to get there. It's going to, it's going to, we're eventually, it's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I know we, we said we were going to talk for about half an hour, but I, I wanted to ask you, and we may have already covered it. So if we did, just, you can just say that. But um, early on, you mentioned something about how you, uh, one of the things that you're working to do is to uh, identify these basic roadblocks to change. Um, can you just briefly outline what what you see are, are the roadblocks to change? Well,
2: it well, like I'll give you I give you an example like can we leave the past in the past? <laughs> That's something I hear a lot. <laughs> Every time you want to really get into some serious discussion they're talking about leaving the past in the past so that's that's uh the issue of avoidance it's uncomfortable so i want to avoid it so that's one roadblock is is people getting people to be willing to listen in the first place Mm -hmm. and then there is one call the last Jim Crow generation is in charge. And that talks about the how we, those of us in our 60s, we're the last Jim Crow generation, and we're in charge, and we never addressed anything, anything (laughs) about our childhood that formed out who we are. And we were separated in that way, in such a horrible, horrible childhood. And nobody talked about it. we just pretending like it didn't happen. So I talk about that. Um, I talk about the media, who which has a very, very large role in the whole mess. Um, you know, this uh, thinking about what you just thought, this, how we aren't aware of our biases and how we're constantly processing and making judgments about people immediately when we see them. And so it's talking about how you can start to think more consciously. Uh, It talks about the church, the paradox of the cross and the lynching tree, the division between black and white Christians, uh, so bamboozle that talks about poor whites and the marking of poverty with a black face when the majority of the people who are poor are white and and how marketing with a black face has put them in the position that makes them want to march. And because really bad things are happening to them because nobody is doing things to help the poor anymore because they put the black face on it. So mm-hmm. that talks about racial marking and how mm-hmm. it affects the solution of problems. So things like that, you know,
0: that's, that's, like I say, each essay deals with a different thing. I like your point about um, just like acknowledging the history and, and being honest about it, because like, even right now I'm going through the process, my fiance and I, of finding a venue for our wedding and, um, later this year in Virginia, and it's crazy, like, how many places, you know, have the history of slavery there, but they don't, um, they don't openly acknowledge it, and they try to cover it up or make it seem like, you know, it's not that big of a deal, Um, and there are some venues that do talk about it, and they say, hey, we we acknowledge this is the dark history that we have in this land, and here's how we're trying to address, like, current Issues around um, racism, so I think there's there's something really powerful about that concept of it's just being able to expose and acknowledge the truth about um, our history.
2: Yeah, and 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 looking at your recent history, like the people who did. Who you know shot my dad, or the people who killed Emmett Till? Their children are the same age as I am. Um, you know, you 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 people don't really think about history as the people who bombed and blew up and killed the four little girls in Sunday School in Birmingham. You know, their children are still around. They're managers. They're supervisors. They're if if we don't really talk about What the previous generation did, what what the generation of of, of McConnell and and Sessions and those that generation, the horrible things that happened in that generation racially, then it's harder for people in their 40s and and 30s to understand the conflict between us
1: mm-hmm. exactly,
2: or yeah, even yeah. how we feel yeah. because they keep saying, well, slavery is a long time ago. Uh, can we talk about what happened in my lifetime? Right. But the people who are still alive, who <laughs> right. still did these things, who never went to jail because the people who do the manipulation of the poor and the middle class hardly ever go to jail or are held responsible for the lynchings and the, you know, insurrection, whatever, whatever. They're yes. hardly yes. ever held responsible. Yes. And so, so yeah, we 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 need to talk about
1: more recent times. <laughs> Read <laughs>
2: that history. Right.
1: Study that. Yeah, absolutely, and it is something where um, it is. Uh, whereas, yes, as, as important as it is. To, to talk about the history, and we do need to understand the, what happened in the past. Uh, as you're saying, as you're pointing out, um, these are things, there are things that are still going on. There are things that, that have happened in our lifetime. and mm-hmm. it's not something that's merely in the past. Oh, that was a long time ago, that was you know, that was years ago. Yes, there are things that happened a long time ago. We do need to study those and understand those, but we also need to recognize these things are still happening. They are still going on. We have not solved this problem. Of racism in America. And I, I agree with you, Cleo. I really do believe that the the secret to really cracking the code, I think the the only way it's ever really going to make an impact is when white Christians and black Christians come together and, and actually seriously and honestly begin to work on this together. And I think it's something, um, I, I'm excited about the work you're doing. Uh, I, I want to just do all I can to help what you're doing, promote what you're doing, I want to see more of the kinds of things you're doing there uh, in Goose Creek, South Carolina, or Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, I want to see more of that happening uh, around the country. And so, yeah, first of all, I just want to say just thank you so much for the work that you're doing. um, Yeah, Thank
2: you for having me. And uh, one other thing I wanted to throw in on the raceology, there is a discussion guide that goes with it so that when groups get together, they can easily discuss the topic.
0: That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. I just wanted to add, I didn't mean that we should only focus on slavery. I guess what I was getting at is is like the systemic effort to erase that history or romanticize it, which then tells us that racism isn't a problem today, is what I meant. So,
2: (laughs) yeah, (laughs) My, my grand, I mean, the person who raised my father was born in the 1840s. So, so. Oh, wow. (laughs) What my dad was taught about how to be a father (laughs) came from somebody who was born in slavery times.
1: Yeah. Uh, Cleo, uh, if people want to find out more about you or your books or the work that you're doing there in South Carolina Um, How can they keep up with you? Do you have a blog or a website, or you know, how can they find your books and things like that?
2: Well, you can find information at www.cleo c l e o scott s c o t t brown like the color brown dot com, and on there you can find uh, information about my two books, Witness to the Truth and Raceology One Hundred One. And you can also, I've discontinued my blog, but the the older versions are out there and the information is just as relevant. So you would like to read it, read some of my writings.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Thank you so much, Cleo. Thank you for having me.
1: So wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Cleo. Uh, it's so funny because I, I, I don't know if we talked about I don't know if this made it onto the episode or not. I can't remember, unfortunately. But um, I think um, when I first met Cleo, I thought she was a doctor. And so I, I <laughs> in my mind, it's stuck in my head. I always think Dr. Cleo Scott Brown. And I know she's yeah. not a doctor, but I would like to extend to her an honorary doctorate <laughs> in race, racial reconciliation work. I think she's definitely somebody. Um, if she's not a doctor, she should be. I, I really love her, her heart and her perspective and her passion and, and the kind of work that she's doing there uh, in, uh, in South Carolina.
0: Totally. I will probably refer to her as Dr. Cleo Scott-Brown for as long as I live. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she deserves that title.
1: So what I loved about, uh, well, so much, but what I really, some of the things that really stood out to me um, in our conversation with, with Cleo, um, you know, she, she talks about, um, well, I mean, uh, where do we begin? I guess the thing, one of the things that I had written down in my notes was when she, she talks about the fact that, um, that she hasn't been very successful getting sort of Christian faith leaders or pastors to join her programs. And, um, Mm -hmm. that really it seems that white Christian leaders specifically, have these blind spots when it comes to this issue mm-hmm. of, uh, of racial reconciliation. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, that it's the white church. It's the, it, are, it is white Christians who really need to be the ones who, um, who decide that they're willing to listen and to move in this direction and to participate. Cause it will, it will absolutely, if we're ever going to make any progress in this area, it's only going to be because the white Christians, um, you know, participate in this process because we cannot expect black Christians or black people to Mm -hmm. solve the problem that essentially was created by the white church.
0: Um, Yeah, right. And I, you know, I hear that reflected so often in my different communities or circles here in DC that it's not a black person's job to educate us about what's going on or, you know, what's happened in the past, that we should be taking that upon ourselves. And I do, I do think that's really important. And that's why I love the work that Cleo Scott Brown does, where it does focus on, hey, here's some of the uncomfortable, (laughs) as she worded it, history that we need to look at and understand before we can move forward into, um, you know, justice and, and reconciliation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then she makes the point about how, you know, it was the white church that taught us that slavery was okay. Um, right. That, that right. cherry-picked Bible verses uh, in the Old and the New Testament to say, well, the Bible doesn't really condemn this. And actually, you know, God, God says this is okay. And, um, and, and, and yeah. that's such a horrible, <laughs> it's such a sad um, part of, of American history. That that is true. That is the case mm-hmm. um, because uh, because the the church, you know, around the time of the Civil War, was either confused about or willingly blind about um, this issue of slavery. Uh, this is kind of what led us to into a Civil War. Because I think if the if the church had not been divided over this question, uh, and specifically over the question of whether or not it was something that Christians should be a part of or not. Um, we might not have been able to avoid, you know, some of that bloodshed. Um, And even though we've had a civil war, right? And even though we've had a civil rights movement, and even though we feel like in some ways we've made progress in some ways, in many, many, many ways, we still have not made progress. And I say, I think even in the, especially in the church, um, you know, you can say on what level, at the societal level, the cultural level, um, you know, maybe some laws have been passed, some things have been done. But really, within the church, we still have a segregated church. We have a white church mm-hmm. and a black church. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we do have, as as Cleo has said, you know, we have white churches that pretty much feel like this racial problem isn't their problem. Uh, it's not something that we need to be thinking about or be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that isn't the case. Like we really do need to own it. We really do need to uh, admit that we are the ones who've contributed to this problem and then decide we want to be a part of the solution.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I wonder, like, if if the white church, the white Christian community were to acknowledge all of these things and decide we're going to be a part of building something new, what would that look like? You know, if, if the church were to come alongside the Black community and say, yes, like, yes, we stand with you. We agree with you. And we recognize the harms that we've done in the past, how that could actually create something new um, for the church and for our country, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. If that were to happen, what would that look like and what kind of change? I don't know. I'm just a, I'm a visionary. So I'm always like, how could this happen? And you know, what could that change look like? Um, So I think like, you know, what, Cleo's doing in South Carolina is, is huge because it's, it's bringing people together across racial divides and.
1: um, Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about, when you talk about like, what would it look like? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a wonderful question, Becca. I think that, I mean, that would just be a wonderful exercise. If, if, if nothing else, if, if white Christians would get together and spend energy and time thinking that way, like what could it look like? What should it look like? Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when there's something in the news um, like Ahmaud Aubrey or George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, you know, that the Christian church would instantly and immediately recognize these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are human beings that are loved by God. What is done to them is an injustice. This is wrong. We're going to we're going to instantly without a second thought. We're going to stand up. We're going to stand beside them and with them. We're going to speak out against it. We're going to use our white privilege. We're going to use our voice uh, and our status in the community to, you know, advocate and speak out because again, this is one of these areas where the church, I think has, especially the white church has failed um, to do that. Right. We, we don't, in other words, we don't automatically um, see how in the ways in which black people in America are suffering. We don't Mm -hmm. automatically identify with their suffering, we don't automatically say, um, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, these are, these are people, um, Mm -hmm. that are worthy of of, of the the same rights and and respect that the rest of us deserve. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, yeah, that that for me is like the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question, what could it look like? I, I think that would be a bare minimum that, uh, the church would, it would be unified together to speak out against these injustices and be very vocal in the same way that the church is so, you know, um, vocal uh, about many other issues, right? We, we band together and we put our, we all sign the petition and we all go out and maybe we even march and we have a sign and we know we're so willing to, to get out and advocate for other things that we perceive as injustices in the world, but not as much. We're, we're, we don't have an equal level Mm -hmm. of outrage, of uh, a sense of injustice, of speaking out, of kind of putting skin in the game um, Mm -hmm. on this issue of of, um, either racial reconciliation or just speaking along, you know, standing alongside our black brothers and sisters when they, their communities are, are suffering or being oppressed.
0: Right. Because I feel like mostly the reaction or the responses that I see from predominantly white churches are, you know, Um, we have to focus on the gospel. We're not going to focus on anything else. Right. Or, you know, we don't have all the details. We don't have all the information and we're not going to pick sides or be politically divisive or be political. And I'm like, you are being political by, (laughs) by not speaking up. And, um, clearly, I mean, this is the gospel, right? Like these are humans created in God's image. Like Jesus died for them. Jesus loves them. Like, this is something that is inherent to the gospel when you have a whole group of people being systemically oppressed and killed mercilessly. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I love, so I, I totally agree with you. And I definitely have heard uh, when it comes to racial reconciliation or when it comes to issues of injustice in the black community, um, or, you know, uh, when we talk about prejudice or we talk about um, those kinds of issues, with, I do hear white Christians coming back with that statement, well, the solution to this problem isn't political. The solution to this problem isn't changing the laws or, or re- reforming the police and the way they're trained or the way they react in black communities. No, no, no. The only solution is the gospel. And on one level, I mean, when I first hear that automatically, my, my what I feel is, what a cop out. <laughs> but then I right. think, OK, you know what? OK, you're right. It is the gospel. So let's think about that. In what ways would the gospel change that th- this reality? Are we admitting that we have a problem? Yes. Are we admitting that black people suffer um, in ways that white people don't? Yes. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna first admit that there is a problem because you're saying not only to solve that problem is through the gospel. So first, let's just define the problem that mm-hmm. this is happening. Right. This, there is an injustice, there, there, there is an inequity between mm-hmm. the way black people are treated in America and white people are treated in America. Okay, the solution is the gospel. So in what ways will the gospel help white people and black people come together more in love? Like if you believe that, then put mm-hmm. some feet to it, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, in other words, we act as if when we say those statements, people say that, oh, the gospel will solve the problem. They just say that statement and then they're done. Right. If we really are going to believe that the gospel is the solution, we have to actually go and live out the gospel, right? What is the, one of the, the major things the gospel tells us is that, you know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, if your neighbor is black and your neighbor is suffering this way, in what ways will you in fulfilling the gospel and living out the gospel, love your neighbor who is black, who is going through these sufferings? Like it, We, I don't think we can allow that sort of a blanket statement that the gospel is it will only the gospel will solve the problem um, Mm -hmm. to be the last word. Like, okay, if you believe the gospel will solve the problem, in what ways are you committed to living out the gospel to bring about the solution and the change that you admit we need that needs to happen?
0: Right. That's so good. That's so good because you know it. It reminds me of like the some of the white evangelists during the era of slavery who would go they cared about the souls of black slaves right black enslaved people they wanted to make sure that they were saved that they got baptized that they um were preached the gospel but then didn't do anything to free them from slavery which is just so it's just to me it's unconscionable (laughs) but i think i wonder how much are we kind of carrying a similar mindset if we're saying, oh, you know, we just, you know, just focus on the gospel and we don't need, like you're saying, we don't need to change any laws or policies that would give the black community greater equity um, or, you know, work against structural oppression, or even during the civil rights era, like the white moderates who just were like, well, you know, we're, we're just, that's too controversial, or we don't want to get involved in that. And today we, we, applaud the civil rights movement and we lift it up as something really good and positive. Yeah. But I just wonder like how many back then would have also said, you know, we, black people are, are, they're fighting for something very basic, which is equal voting rights, you know, right. and just equal rights in general that today we applaud and we celebrate. But looking back, most white Christians weren't, I mean, eventually like in Selma there were clergy members and people who went to to march with them, but that took a lot for them. It took them seeing these black activists being killed on 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 television um, yeah. to do that. So, um, yeah, I think we can't we can't forsake justice, which is inherent to the gospel, which uh-huh. is inherent to shalom, um, for our brothers and sisters.
1: Yeah, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Is such a key part of the of that solution, and as you were saying, you know the uh, one of the major reasons why what happened in Selma was effective, and the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was effective, was because white pastors, mm-hmm. white Christians, um, white people joined in those marches, added their voices, and again, it's like we were saying at the beginning of this podcast, and you know, what Cleo was saying is that. You know, it was the white church that taught us that, that these things were okay. Um, it's white people that have contributed right. to the the, the, con, the con persistence of these these the racial inequalities and the racism that's inherent in our systems. And mm-hmm. and without our, without our participation, it won't change. It's not going to change if we don't somehow get involved. And like you were talking about, you know, um, how Christians were so concerned about preaching the gospel to. Uh, to people that were in slavery, but not interested in freeing them from slavery. And it's sort of like, I can't help, but think about how, you know, what are the implications of saying, you know, we should love our neighbor as ourselves? Um, like, think about it. Like I'm a parent. So if, if you have kids, this may be an easier analogy to think of, but I, I think of it like, what if one of my kids was in slavery? wouldn't I do everything in my power to get them out of slavery? Would I just be concerned about if they prayed the prayer and they're going to go to heaven when they die? But, you know, they're going to live the rest of their life in slavery and they're going to be treated in this horrible way, like an animal or property mm-hmm. or something. But, you know, yeah. at least they're going to go to heaven. Well, no, of course not. If I really love my child right. my son or my daughter, um, right. my love for my son or my daughter would be expressed in my passion, in my, my hard work to make sure right. they were set free not just spiritually but literally actually right. free yes. right i would want freedom for them and and so if we're going to say we love our neighbors ourselves and we love our, our black neighbors uh, as much as and, and brown neighbors as much as we love uh, ourselves and our own you know jesus says if you only love those who love you in return what credit is that to you right so we yeah. we definitely need to go this extra mile we we de- definitely need to step beyond what we think is just good enough Um, Uh, because good enough isn't good enough. It really isn't.
0: Right. Totally. And, you know, and I think, yeah, it's important for us to, yeah, be reflecting on how are we bringing up these conversations within our own, our own circles, right? Like our own spheres of influence. Who are we, who are we talking to? Who are we engaging in dialogue with? And how are we bringing these issues up in a way that can foster greater understanding and greater um, desire to engage in peacemaking by creating a holistic, um, just society in our communities. So, Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, So I'm so grateful to Cleo for having this conversation with us and bringing up these very important issues. So excited by the work that she's doing um, I mean, honestly, when I was listening to her talk, I, I just, in my heart, what I wish is that this was something that was going on, not just in South, in South Carolina, right? Um, right. If, if, if there's some way to expand the work that she's doing in, in this area, in Charleston, to every major city, right? We, this is needed everywhere. Yeah. Um, and uh, probably wherever we live, uh, it would be wonderful if we could find ways to bring uh, white Christians and black Christians together to have these kind of conversations and like as she talks about sort of these steps of like, we have to learn the history. We have to get in these sort of smaller, more intimate groups and have conversations. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to listen to each other. Um, and then and by developing these relationships and recognizing what's really going on. Um, that's really the first steps towards um, imagining what it could look like to live in a world mm-hmm. where this was something that used to be, and we used to have this problem. We used to struggle with this mm. um, rather than saying, you know, almost really since the, the beginning of the formation of America, even in the colonies, right? We had these kinds of problems and issues. And here we are today in 2021 and we're still wrestling with this. We're still um, trying to face this problem, right? To look at mm-hmm. square in the eye, to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, yep, we we do have a problem. We kinda of created the problem. And since we're the we're the ones that created the problem, we're the only ones who are gonna be able to solve the problem.
0: Yeah, to fix, yeah, and repair. Repair the damages that yes. have been done. Yeah. You meant that. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Spotify. And for more info about peace catalysts and to help support our peace building work please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.